Good morning. Please have a seat. Uh, I, uh, two, two things that I should mention. Number one, um, uh, I, I neglected to say in my announcement about serving the summer with the kids uh, that this is not going to be particularly difficult. Not that it normally is, but uh, Anne is setting it up so that uh, you basically will show up and put in a video and then make sure nobody dies. Is that correct? Okay. Um, so that's pretty much the extent of what's going to be involved. So, what? I, I, we really leave that to your discretion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, ask Anne. Yeah. Duct, duct tape, yes, you, if you'd like, feel, feel free. Um, the, uh, the, the second thing I should mention, uh, I just I want to say thank you again for uh, all of your prayerful support. Uh, I did finish the, my work for my uh, degree uh, this week, and I'm going to be... Oh, thank you. Um, I, I will be graduating this, this Wednesday, and Lord willing, uh, will not be uh, on Amtrak for a while. Uh, but please, please, I mean, I will say one thing that I have learned from this experience of going back and forth to New York every week on Amtrak, usually, until this week, um, is, uh, is just at really, frankly, how vital uh, a line of transportation that is for uh, the whole East Coast. Uh, I mean, they, they talk about the Acela Corridor between Washington and Boston, and there's like, I, I think, three quarters of a million people ride that thing every day. Um, so, uh, for, frankly, for the functioning of our nation, not to mention for the health of the people who are riding it, um, I think we need to all pray that uh, Amtrak can sort out whatever they have to sort out. But uh, I am grateful that, um, that all of these uh, travels for me have been, uh, have been safe and uh, reasonably peaceful, and that the worst thing I've had to complain about was, uh, you know, the train being late. So, uh, today we are in Romans 16. We're coming uh, to, the, to the end of our, our Roman series, and uh, today we're, we're going to be, uh, well, let's just start from the beginning of chapter 16 so we can roll to the, to the passage that we're looking at. In chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, Now commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to provide her with whatever help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many, including me. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Also greet the church in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in the whole province of Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my compatriots and my fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my good friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my compatriot. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphasa, labors in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who was also a mother to me. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the believers who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now let me ask, especially for those of you who are maybe the kids who have not been here uh, every week as we've been talking about these passages, what, what do you notice about 
what's going on in this, this part of Romans? What, what, what keeps coming back up again and again? Anybody who is listening? What? Greet. Yes, there's a lot of greeting going on, right? There's a lot of greeting. And, and, and who is being greeted here? Uh, try to mumble a little more softly and less clearly so we can't hear you. Okay? Try again. Fellow prisoners. Some of these people are fellow prisoners, right? Paul, remember, Paul, uh, Paul had a record as long as his arm uh, because he had the habit of, of showing up in town and uh, saying things that people didn't like and then getting beaten up and then getting arrested and getting beaten up some more. Um, so this is not something that only happens recently. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so he was imprisoned, and there are other believers who were imprisoned along with him. Yes? People who work hard. Yeah, there are people who are working hard. They're coming in on Saturdays, you know, um, and um, uh, yeah, eating lunch at their desk. Yeah, there are people who are working hard, right? What are they working hard at? What's that? Well, they're working hard, yeah, at creating disciples, at building the church, spreading the, the good news of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, Alicia, you were going to say something? Yes, he's greeting fellow believers. Yep. Marlene? In different places. Yep. Caroline? Very good. That's, uh, that's very good, Caroline. Caroline noticed that a lot of these names come out of Greek myths, right? A lot of these names are, in fact, names of, of goddesses, gods and goddesses. Um, so what kind of people would have these kinds of names? Greeks, Gentiles, right? We've been talking about how Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and in this church in Rome, there are people who are, uh, who are, are Jews, and there are people who are uh, Jews who, who kind of identify closely with the culture of Jerusalem, but then there are also people who identify more with a Hellenized culture, with, a, with a, a, more of a, a Greek culture who are Jewish. And then you also have people who were pagans, people who were Gentiles, who are not Jewish, who are part of this community. And in, in fact, it, basically all the names that he's rattling off here in chapter 16, uh, all, he's giving shout-outs to a bunch of Gentiles. So uh, he's talking about all these different people and, and, uh, and all the wonderful things they've done. Uh, and, and yes, as, we, as some people mentioned, we, you know, the idea is that he's, he's conveying that the gospel has spread to all sorts of places. You've got all sorts of different people. You've got people who, are, uh, who have been imprisoned with him, who've suffered persecution with Paul. You have people who are working hard with him. You have people who have helped him. Uh, and, and you have to understand, when, when Paul is giving these shout-outs to the church in Rome, do you think the people in Rome have any idea who these folks are? Yeah, of course they do. Why else would he bother, right? It's not like... You ever read liner notes and, the, you know, the people are, uh, the, the musicians are thanking all these people that you don't know, and, you know, you kind of feel a little bit left out, right? Well, the, the people in Rome would have known these folks, or at least some of them, and they oh, yeah, Aristobulus, yeah, you know, he's the guy with the funny thing on his head, yeah. So, um, so he's, he's talking about people who are real, and I think one of the things that, where, where we can, we can uh, miss the reality of, of Scripture is that sometimes we'll read these passages, and they're so 
they're so dignified and they're so beautiful and the theological truths embedded in them are, are, are so rich. And, and that's all true, but we also have to remember this was a letter written by a guy who actually was a guy back in the first century sending it to a community of people who were men and women also in the first century, probably uh, many of whom couldn't read, so Phoebe, whom he mentions at the beginning, is probably the person who came and read this letter. So as they're gathered together, Phoebe came and said, hey, I have a letter from Paul. Remember Paul? You've heard about him? He's the guy who gets beaten up and arrested all the time. He's coming here. Don't worry. But he's coming here. <laughs> so lawyer up. And, and he wrote us a letter. So uh, let, let's hear what he has to say. And then at the end of this, after he's says, greet this person, greet that person. Then he says, and greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I need to say something about the holy kiss that is very, very important. We do not know what exactly Paul is talking about here. There is not some unique Greek word that he is using here for kiss that if we can research that properly and understand the exact technique being applied with this kiss where, how long, etc. There are not pictures and catacombs, there are not drawings left by early Christians of people making out that show us what the holy kiss would have looked like. We do not have extensive lessons from the fathers on exactly how this ought to be done. So we do not know exactly what Paul is talking about here. That's the first thing I want to make sure we, we are clear on. The second thing is I think we can be also confident that the people Paul was writing to did. That when Phoebe got up and said, and Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, they didn't say, really? Let me go brush my teeth. This was, this was not an odd thing. For one thing, you see this in Paul's other letters as well. The end of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, he tells People greet one another with a holy kiss. At the end of 1 Peter, he says, greet one another with the kiss of love, probably the same thing. It gets referred to as the kiss of peace. So this was not something that was strange. Paul is telling people to do something that would have been normal for them to do, that would have been uh, appropriate in their cultural setting, and, and that, uh, that was a good practice for the church to, to do. But you may have noticed that with the exception of people married to each other, most of us are not exchanging holy kisses here on Sunday morning. You probably, if you've grown up in the church, at least in these United States, you probably are not accustomed to people exchanging the holy kiss during the service. And so that raises the question, are we being unfaithful? Are we being disobedient to Scripture if we don't exchange the holy kiss? And it's it's a good question to ask, which is why I asked it. One way you can respond to that question is to say yes. And with the guy on the cover of the bulletin, say, we need to get biblical. And we need to be exchanging the holy kiss. I think most of us, when we consider that idea, immediately think, well, no, that, that can't be it. Whatever the answer is, it can't be that. 
And this is part of the challenge of reading Scripture. Remember, these, these texts were written 2,000 years ago. They were written at a different time in a different place. They're written about situations that we don't know entirely, where we don't know entirely what was going on. They're written about people whom we don't necessarily uh, know. And uh, we, we read things, and some things are just puzzling. Some things are really difficult to understand. And when we encounter things in Scripture that are difficult to understand, there are a few different ways we can handle that. One way is to say, well, I don't understand it, so therefore I'm just going to ignore it and go on my merry way. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. We're told that all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it is useful, all of it's been given to us by the Spirit for a reason. So if there's something we don't understand, I think that calls us to try harder, to work harder to understand rather than simply ignoring it. Another way is if we find something that we don't understand is we could say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to in spite of what it says. People do this with things they don't understand. People do this with things they read in Scripture they don't like. They say, and usually they'll, they'll dress it up and make it sophisticated like, well, I disagree with Paul on that. Well, again, it's a free country and you're, you're free to do that, but that is not how people who have a high view of Scripture, people who receive this as the Word of God, ought to treat this text. But when we read things that are difficult to understand, or things that may seem to be telling us to do things that would be difficult, we have to say, well, why why wouldn't we, right? Because if we're reading something and we're told to do it, it could simply be that we're reacting against it because it would be unpleasant. I mean, I, I, I don't think most of you would find it pleasant to greet me with a holy kiss. I'm guessing. I hope you're not offended. I don't really want to be doing that either. I mean, I'm not even a huggy kind of guy. There are a few specific people I know are, and I have to make sure I give them hugs so that they don't feel like they're being dissed. But... You know, especially when it gets hot and sweaty, I just, you know, I'll nod at you, all right? And there are some things that we get commanded to do that are difficult to do, and we look at them, and they're telling, and, and, and the Scripture's telling us to do things that are going to be hard to do, or just to not do things that we, that we like to do, or that we want to do. So we'll look at something that, uh, some command that we're given, and we'll say, ah, man, I don't want to do that. So like when Jesus says, forgive one another, that can be really hard to do. Has anybody else experienced this? When you've been hurt by somebody? And do you you want to share about that or are you just letting us know that you have experiences? Yeah. When you've been hurt by somebody, especially if that person is not repentant, if that person hasn't apologized, if that person thinks they've done the right thing. That person thinks you're being unreasonable and you need to apologize to them. That's hard to do. I mean, if you've been hurt, if you've been really harmed by what somebody has done to you, maybe somebody has done something to you that's actually cost you a friendship. Maybe somebody's done something that's cost you money. Somebody's harmed something you care about. It can be hard to forgive, and Jesus tells us to forgive anyway, doesn't he? Right? This whole idea of forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, Jesus kind of baked that into his prayer so that I think, I think so that we'd be constantly reminded 
that our asking God for, to, for forgiveness is always linked to our forgiving one another. We don't get to say, well, I'm going to hold this against you, even as I ask God to forgive all of my sins. Remember he told the story about the, about the un- ungrateful servant? Remember he, he owed, his, you know, owed, owed his, his boss gazillions of dollars, and, and he couldn't pay it, and the boss forgave him. And then he goes out to his buddy who owes him 100 bucks and says, hey, pay up. And, and the boss hears about this. He's like, what a jerk you are. I cannot believe this. I forgave you all this money, and then you go chase your buddy for $100. Well, you, you, you absolutely don't get it. And the, I think the point of Jesus telling us that story is to say, that's exactly what it's like for you when you refuse to forgive your brother or your sister who harms you. God has forgiven you so much, and yet you're going to hold a grudge over this little thing? Really? But it's hard to do. Which is why many people, when they read that, say, well, you know, I, I just can't do that. Or the God I worship would never want me to. Well, okay, that's probably an accurate statement. The God you worship would not want you to do that. However, the one true Lord of the universe does. So if the God you're worshiping isn't doing what the God of the universe does, you are probably worshiping an idol and you would, would, uh, be, would do well to stop that. But there's sometimes when we read something and, and we, we just feel a check about following it, uh, not because it's unpleasant or because it's difficult, but just because it's weird, right? I mean, a, a great example of this, again, this is why we don't necessarily uh, apply the Bible literally in every case. You remember in our Ezekiel series, I'm sure you remember fondly, um, God tells Ezekiel to bake bread made out of some really... Uh, Un- unpleasant ingredients. These, the, the reason he's having him bake bread out of these ingredients is not because this is like a health food kick. Uh, it's because when you are experiencing famine, then you're going to bake bread out of whatever you can find. And if all you can find is, is lentils and spelt, then you're going to try to bake bread out of that. So when you go to Trader Joe's and you find Ezekiel bread on the shelf where somebody actually followed the recipe and made bread... I applaud the person's uh, industrious entrepreneurship, and uh, I'm happy that the person's able to make some money, and if you like that bread, congratulations. Uh, But the idea is not that God is giving Ezekiel a recipe. The idea is God is is having the prophet enact what is coming, what's going to happen, which is that the people are going to be besieged. Jerusalem is going to suffer severe famine because it's under siege. People will be baking their bread out of whatever they can find, and... Here's the next part, and I don't know if this technique is followed precisely by the people who make the Ezekiel bread. God tells Ezekiel, you need to bake your bread over a fire made of human dung. Ezekiel talks God down to cow dung. But again, the point is, this is not the sort of thing that people want to be doing on a normal basis. And when you read that, you say, I I don't want to do that. I think we're supposed to realize, no, you're, you're, you're not supposed to do that. God told this one guy, Ezekiel, to do this back then. God also told Ezekiel to do a bunch of other weird things and to say a bunch of other weird things he probably doesn't want you to say. God tells people to do things sometimes in a particular situation to address a particular need, and his prophets especially get told to say and do some really wacky things. Just because he told one person to do that doesn't mean he tells all of us. And then when we read things like greet one another with a holy kiss... I think we have to say, yeah, that that seems kind of weird to us. Why does that seem weird to us? 
Well, basically, it, it seems weird to us because that's not what we do, right? I mean, in some cultures, people do that, right? And, and when you meet people from those cultures, sometimes it can be a little awkward because they're bringing you in and you're like, I don't want to do that. Uh, but for, for some people, that kiss is entirely appropriate. That's what you do. But that's not our culture, right? So when J.B. Phillips, who did a, a paraphrase of the New Testament back in the 50s, when he translated this passage, he said, a warm handshake all around. Which, you know, probably is more like what we're talking about in terms of what is socially proper, what is culturally acceptable. And the, the truth is that sometimes being faithful to Scripture means that we're transposing what we find into a different cultural key. We're taking what's there and we're, we're being faithful to the idea behind it, the, 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 the reason why it would be there, but, but we're following it in a way that makes sense in our own setting. Now, there are some people who really try to make sense of having this work. There are some churches you go to and they will kiss each other. And, uh, in fact, uh, in some, uh, in, well, in a lot of churches nowadays, there will be people who do that. Few of, few of them are Protestant. There are folks who will do that. And, and as we ponder what it means to be faithful to this in our own cultural setting, then it's good for us to look at what the church does. I mean, historically, how has the church handled this? How has the church tried to be faithful to this thing that Paul told us to do? And we can look at these churches. There are churches that do exchange the kiss. Guess what happens in those churches? You get a lot of what? You get a lot of colds. That could be. Yeah, I guess, you, yeah, because some people do like the, uh, um, uh, the, the hand sanitizer after, you know, shaking hands with everybody else. Uh, I, what, you can't really do the equivalent. I guess you, yeah, mouthwash. Yeah, that could work. Um, what's happened in those churches, by the way, in this, and you see this in the, in the early fathers, and you see this as recently as this year, um, the religious authorities have to keep reminding people from time to time that exchanging the holy kiss is supposed to be exchanging a holy kiss of Christian fellowship and not something else. I mean, one of the reasons, perhaps, that the early church got a reputation as a place where all kinds of inappropriate things were happening was that they would exchange the kiss. It's quite possible that sometimes that was not done in the best of ways. So we, we know that just following this example is not necessarily a morally neutral thing. It doesn't necessarily just work to, to do exactly what Paul says. Usually the way this gets worked out is that this kiss is exchanged in the setting of the Eucharist, during the liturgy. So in the, uh, in the Roman tradition, the Roman church, uh, basically after the table is set, before the, the Eucharistic prayer, uh, you have the exchange of peace, and then the, the kiss of peace is exchanged. That's part of preparing to take communion, part of preparing to come and, uh, and receive the body and blood of the Lord together. Uh, in, in other traditions, for example, in the Anglican tradition, the, the peace, the passing of the peace comes uh, before the offering. Before, you know, the, the offering means that the, not only people uh, giving money, but also that the elements for communion, the bread and the wine, are brought forward as a gift of the people. Uh, and, and the idea of setting the peace there is, you'll remember what Jesus said, if, if you're going to the temple to bring your offering and you remember that you have something against your brother, what does he say to do? Says, he says, cram that down and just try to ignore that and get on with your religious duty. 
does not say that. He says, no, leave your offering right there. Go reconcile with your brother. And then come back and, and make your offering. The, the integrity of the community, Jesus is saying, is, is more important than you having your own religious transaction. And so that's why in, in that setting, the, the idea of passing the peace is, is not just a stand break. It's not just a chance to stretch your legs before you go on to the next part of the service. The idea is that, that that's the time where you need to be reconciled to the people that you're taking communion with. If you're sitting next to your spouse, that may be an important, a rather timely issue. That's not necessarily supposed to be the time where you go and greet everybody in the room. That does not, you're not, you don't have to, God says, Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss doesn't necessarily mean you have to greet everybody. And it's probably also not the time to get into an intense discussion with somebody because it's supposed to be a brief exchange of peace in the course of the service. So here we call it the stand break. When, when we finish with a prayer before the sermon, it's an opportunity to stand up and say hello to somebody near you. Partly that is so that you can stretch your legs and do something while the preacher gets up here. And part of that is a matter of us sharing the peace of Christ with one another. And I think it's important that we, we recognize that, that however that happens, whether that's with a hug or with a handshake or with nodding to each other during flu season, that I think there, there are three important things that go on there. And these are the things that would have gone on with Paul's holy kiss in Rome, and these are the things that go on with our stand break. These are the things that should go on when people pass the peace uh, in the Episcopal Church down the street. The first is reconciliation. This is a way to ensure that we are reconciled to one another, that if there is conflict within the body, if there are relationships that are not whole, that we have the opportunity to say, whatever I'm feeling about you right now, I can at least say the peace of Christ be upon you. And I can receive your blessing of the peace of Christ. And we can, we can say, we are, we are together in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and however we, we feel about our relationship right now, this is a place where we are together, where we have commonality. And we are going to trust that God is giving us the resources we need to work out what we have to work out, not least in the Eucharist, not least in the fellowship of God's people. In the Eastern tradition, it would be customary during the peace for the deacon to stand up and basically say, hey, is there anybody here who has unresolved conflict? Is there anybody here who has something against someone else? Literally, while people are passing the kiss of peace, he would stand up and say that. Say, this is the time. This is the time for you to begin that work of reconciliation that you need to do. In addition to reconciliation, the kiss of peace, the greeting, is about intimacy. Because, yes, even in cultures where people routinely will greet each other with a kiss. It's not the same kiss that you exchange with somebody who is in your family. This kiss is probably the kiss of the love you have within the family. Treating one another as brothers and sisters, especially treating one another as brothers and sisters across racial and ethnic lines. 
for Jews and Gentiles to treat one another as brothers and sisters was scandalous to many. And you're not just saying, yes, I'm able to get along with you. I'm able to be in the same place as you. I'm able to tolerate your presence as long as I don't look at you. But no, it's saying, I am in fellowship with you. I call you a brother or a sister in Christ. We are in the same family. We have the same father. And we're in this together, whether we like it or not. And in the case of you in particular, that would be not. But God's put us here together. And so we are going to affirm the reality that we have an intimate relationship, even though that's the last thing either of us would want right now. So the kiss is about reconciliation. It's about intimacy. And it's also about welcome. And again, sometimes the kiss is simply a a greeting, a standard greeting. You remember the story where Jesus is eating at the Pharisee's house and, uh, and the, the woman uh, with, with a, a, a sketchy reputation comes and she begins kissing his feet. And, and it's, well, he's, what, does he know who that is? And he's letting her kiss him. And he's like, you know, here's the thing. I came into your house and I didn't get a kiss of greeting from you. Presumably he wouldn't have complained about that unless that would have been customary and expected. He's like, I didn't get greeted by you, but here, you know, she hasn't stopped kissing me. It's starting to get a little awkward, actually. So there is a kiss of, of greeting. And it's a kiss of greeting to our brothers and sisters. It's a hi, how you doing? It's good to see you. But it also is a kiss of greeting to those who are not yet our brothers and sisters. It's a kiss of greeting to those who are our brothers and sisters, but who are new to our particular community. But it's also a, a, a greeting to those who are not. And that's why it's important as we do our kiss of peace, our passing of the peace, our stand and greet, whatever we want to call it, that we not make it all about seeing just the people that you already know, that you already planned to see. As Jen said, it's not just about saying hello to the people that you would normally be saying hello to anyway, but it's about being part of this community that we are part of, greeting one another whether we're particularly close or not, and greeting those who are new, and who, whether they're visiting us and are going to get away as fast as they can, uh, or whether they're visiting us in the course of looking to see where God would have them be worshiping. That's, that's part of what we're doing as well. So we greet one another in the way that's appropriate for our cultural context, but we do so in the spirit of reconciliation, in the spirit of intimacy, and in the spirit of welcome, always doing so in a holy way, knowing that this kind of interaction is something that is set apart for the Lord's service. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we as a community seek to follow what you're leading us to do, I pray that we would always have our minds open and our ears open, and our eyes open. We pray that we would hold loosely the the specific practices that we choose, always being willing to be corrected, to be changed as your Spirit further illuminates this text that you've given us. We pray that as we read Scripture, we would be people who would show appropriate curiosity, that we would be diligent to seek to understand the things that we don't understand, that we would treat your word with humility, we would not place ourselves as judges over it. Pray, too, that we would not simply choose to ignore things in it, that we 
find difficult or distasteful, but, but that we would do the work of conforming ourselves to your will. We pray that the result of this would be the edification of your church, the deepening of relationships, the greater health of our community here. And we pray that that would be a winsome thing to people who do not know you yet to see what it looks like when your people love one another. We ask that all this would be to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.